Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Domena, and here with me, as always, is the incredibly resourceful Elliot Shibley. Elliot, take it from here. Thanks, Bob. Before we get into the show, uh, Bob and I, again, wanted to take a moment to thank you all for listening. We're really excited to be doing this podcast, and we hope you like it too. So if you want to reach out to us, have some suggestions on who should be on the show, or if you want to be on the show yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and why you like to travel, reach out to us. We respond to pretty much every direct message on Instagram and email. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, In addition to that, check out minivan of memories we started collaborating with him a few weeks ago and we're really looking forward to this relationship as it grows he provides an awesome platform for like-minded travelers to type up their travel experiences and then share them with the world it's a really cool way for you to learn about other people's experiences in these countries from someone you know from an amateur traveler And then also you have the opportunity to join as a passenger and then share your own travel experiences for other people to read all around. Very cool concept. We're very happy to be a partner with them and really looking forward to this, uh, this building on this relationship. So check it out. Minivanofmemories.com Instagram page, minivanofmemories. Look into it. It is pretty cool. All right. This episode is brought to you by Circle Void. Do you have inventions you pitch to your family at Christmas and they just nod and listen? Did you create something that nobody wants and will never sell? Then look no further than Circle Void, where you can list all of your crap that no one will buy, ever. Your army of tag beanie babies, your vintage Skechers collection, your non-holographic Pokemon cards that you still have, and your pogs. At Circle Void, you can design and develop a very confusing yet complicated website where you can list all of your hoarding possessions that will never turn a profit. Circle void. Make nothing happen. <laughs> I I didn't realize what uh, I was missing in my life or what void I had until I've, I've heard that ad. So. Exactly, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to create thank, an account right now. <laughs> thank you, Circle Void, for being a sponsor of the show. So today's guest is one of the more unique guests we've had on this show in regards to his niche in the travel world. He's an amateur ethnobotanist specializing in South American flora and has an incredible range of knowledge on the plant life down there, specifically Peru, and how some of this plant life has historically been used for spiritual practices. So a lot of what we discussed today revolves around the usage of these plants and the hallucinogenic effects of them. Um, Really cool stuff. A lot of information um, and just an all-around very cool guy. Uh, so without further introduction, please give it up for Scott Light. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Bob. So you are an ethnobotanist, herbalist, adventurer, seed saver, plant hunter, explorer, and apprentice to the shaman of the world. Correct. I like that. I like that a lot. Before we get into it, can you explain what ethnobotany is? So I am, first off, I'll just say I'm an amateur ethnobotanist. I don't have a a degree from a, a university or anything like that, but I've been studying ethnobotany for about 15 years, and ethnobotany is the relationship between plants and people. So an ethnobotanical would be any plant that people use for any purpose. So anything from potatoes we eat, wood we build houses out of, or medicinal or psychoactive plants like ayahuasca or marijuana or anything like that. So any plant that people use. Wow, that's a not a very small subject. <laughs> no, it's very broad. Um, that's one reason I actually find it so interesting because it encompasses pharmacology, chemistry, history, anthropology, many different subjects. So if you get bored of one aspect of ethnobotany, there's a plethora of others to to investigate as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. And do you have a specific focus? My focus would be Amazonian and Andean anthropology and medicinal plants with a particular interest in psychoactive plants. All right. Yeah, and that's that's why we're really excited because (laughs) since Bob and I are heading to Peru, um, we've heard a lot about ayahuasca. And 
we're very curious as to what the effects are, how safe it is, and like where do you access it? What was the intention of it throughout mm -hmm. history, and where does it stand today? Well, yeah, if you guys want to, we'll just jump right into the ayahuasca thing. So ayahuasca is a traditional plant medicine from the from the Amazon. It's in basically every every country that is part of the Amazon basin, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia. They all have some form of, of ayahuasca use. Um, as far as safety goes, uh, it is safe as long as you don't mix it with any other drugs. Um, so as long as you don't, for example, it, it could be very, very dangerous for someone who's on antidepressants to take ayahuasca. It can also be dangerous if you don't do it with a safe, responsible shaman or practitioner. Because some people will add um, different plants to it. It's typically made out of two plants. Uh, their scientific names are Psychotria viridis and Benisteriopsis cathy. But other shaman will add plants that are dangerous, like Brugmansia. It's this big white hanging flower. They grow them in, in gardens all over the world, um, also known as Datura. And if you drink that and you drink too much of it, it can just kill you. So the safety is... It matters a lot who you're doing it with and which plants are in the brew. Um, and so can you break it down? So it, it's a root, correct? It's a vine. Um, or it's a vine. You can, okay. use, you can use the root as well. So the um, Benisteriopsis capi vine is the plant that the common name of ayahuasca is applied to. So ayahuasca refers to the, the vine, this plant, Benisteriopsis capi, and it also refers to the brew itself. The brew itself is typically made with, as I said earlier, two plants, the ayahuasca vine, Banisteriopsis, and chacruna, which the scientific name is uh, Psychotria viridis. The Banisteriopsis, the, the ayahuasca vine, contains MAOIs, uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And those inhibit enzymes in your stomach that would normally break down the other active compound in the ayahuasca, the DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which maybe some people have heard of. So... It's quite a feat of pharmacology that the Amazonian people were able to discover this. Because if you take the vine on its own, it makes you feel maybe a little drowsy, maybe a little drunk, but not much else. If you take the chacruna on its own, it just makes you puke and does no nothing else. But if you put them together, then you get some some real magic. So it's it's very interesting that they were able to figure, figure that out. It sounds like they were essentially doing a broken down and early version of a pill party. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Traditionally, ayahuasca, uh, especially just the vine, was probably used as a purgative to uh, rid people of, of parasites. So living in the Amazon with the, the warm waters and everything, there's a lot of parasites that end up getting into people. And they would take ayahuasca for to rid themselves of parasites. And then I guess one day someone added uh, the chacruna and there was some fireworks and you know, <laughs> he became the life of the party. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, is it true that it is now and it was very much used as like a spiritual drug, almost like a rite of passage to kind of have epiphanies and like become one with yourself and have some kind of spiritual awakening? That That's that's definitely true. Um But there's, there's something that I call the gringo ayahuasca tradition, which is the... Uh, sort of the tradition that has been built by Westerners or white people or whatever you want to call them going down to the Amazon and, and they've sort of um, formed their own tradition, which has also influenced the native tradition. But I guess my point is um, the Machinga, the people I work with in Southern Peru, they joked with me one time that, uh, oh, we take ayahuasca on Saturday because we don't have TV. So <laughs> it's not, right. it's not always a super spiritual thing. But it, it definitely can be, and it often is for the native people. But they typically only use it um, when when they have a uh, some sort of serious issue, de depression, some sort of sickness, something like that. But some of them do take it recreationally as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you don't have to answer this, but I'm curious about the effects. Have you ever taken it? Yeah, I've taken it many times. And what what is your experience? Well, ayahuasca is extremely variable. Sometimes you take it and you feel almost nothing or you just feel slightly drowsy. And then other times you are in for a big mystical ride. I've probably taken it 50 or 60 times or something like that. And yeah, it's, it's always different. But typically you will, the ceremonies we do at the Machinga, you, you sit in a hut, you wait till about 8 or 9 p.m. when it's dark. 
the uh, the shaman or the cordendero sits there and, and talks to you and asks you why you want to do it and stuff like that. Then you drink it. He blows the candle out. Everyone lays down sort of in a, in a circle in the hut. And at about the 45 minute mark, you might feel a little queasy, maybe a hot flash, um, starting to feel a little strange. At that point, the shaman will usually start singing. There's these songs called the Icaros, which are said to um, induce healing. They use these songs to guide the, uh, the ayahuasca. And yeah, you around the hour mark, you might puke, you might not. But usually it comes on around an hour. And usually I'll get a feeling of like deep well-being and happiness and, and euphoria sort of. But other times when I take a bigger dose, I get a feeling of, at the one hour mark of like being really, really scared because I'm about to go into another place. Um, <laughs> it definitely is something to be respected and, and a, a mild healthy fear is good. But people shouldn't be scared that it's going to hurt them. Right? Okay. No. Now, are there any serious negative side effects of taking it? Not in le- if you don't mix it with other drugs, and it is the the traditional two plant with no other additives. Uh, no, Dennis McKenna did some studies on it of um, this church. It's actually a Christian church in Brazil. I think it's Santo Daime. There's a couple different ones though, but it's a Christian church in Brazil, and they take ayahuasca. All the practitioners take ayahuasca. And um, he studied them, and they have lower rates of mental illness, lower rates of depression. High rates of fertility because some drugs, you know, will lower your sperm count or, or mess up, make problems with fertility. And he basically could find only positive effects from the ayahuasca. So I encourage anybody that's a skeptic, go check out that uh, that study by Dennis McKenna. All right. Is ayahuasca available or even legal in the United States? It is legal if you are part of a government approved ayahuasca church. So if anyone ever tells you that ayahuasca is legal, and they're not part of one of these churches, that is incorrect. It is only legal if you are in a government-sanctioned church like Santo Daime or um, Una de Vejita. However, that's referring to the ayahuasca brew. The ayahuasca plant is completely legal. Um, you can you can possess the plant, you can grow the plant, both the plants, uh, Capi and Psychotria, are legal. It's only illegal once you start to brew it and turn it into the uh, prepared liquid drug. Um, but the plants are legal. The brew is not, basically. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So would you would you equate it to, like, the experiences to any other, like, recreational drugs that are available in the U.S. that some that are more common? Yeah. I, I would um, – it's most similar to mushrooms, so, uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Okay. DMT actually is pretty similar to uh, psilocin, one of the active chemicals in magic mushrooms. But that being said, they're still very different. So that's the closest I could compare it to, but they're they're still pretty different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now for anyone traveling through the Andes, through Peru, how do they how do they begin, you know, their research or where can they experience ayahuasca? Well, if you if you were to just Google it, you would get a bunch of uh web pages trying to send you to Iquitos. I personally, like I'll go ahead and say I've never been to Iquitos, but I do not recommend anyone go to Iquitos for ayahuasca personally, unless what you're looking for is the, there's many different ways to do it. Um, but one very popular way is are sort of these big uh, gringo ran retreat centers. And that can be good for some people, especially if people really uh, need some comfort out in the jungle. You know, they want food prepared for them, three meals a day. They want, you know, nice bathrooms, stuff like that. Some of those larger retreat centers are okay if that's what you're looking for but if you want a more traditional experience i would recommend going to the uh to the southern jungles um north of cusco which is the the region i work in so i'm a bit biased but um in manu where we work we we go to a machinga village just a a little village of native americans and we hang out with them for a couple days and we do ceremonies with them but it's not a big like formalized retreat center like they have in iquitos so people can investigate it online, but most of the stuff is going to send you to uh, to Iquitos and uh, working with the Shipibos. Um, the Shipibos are another native group. And again, nothing against them, but Iquitos and the Shipibos are, have, have become commercialized in many ways. So like the, the most common thing that we've seen on doing our research on ayahuasca is that it's usually not available to do just for like a one night or two night thing. Like you want to be 
in somewhere and secured or with the shaman for a few days at least. But a lot of the stuff I've heard about, it seems like it's just the gringo style retreat of Ayahuasca. And that's what they find. And that's what most Westerners and Europeans want and seek out because that's what's they're advertised that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up actually. Yeah. A lot of these retreat centers, they want to sell you like a 10 day package or whatever for sometimes really expensive, you know, 3,000, 4,000, $5,000 or even more. And you get locked in for three ceremonies or five ceremonies or seven ceremonies or whatever it may be. And I always tell people that this is not a good idea. It's not a race. You don't uh, do five ceremonies and become, you know, reach nirvana or something. Um, some people need to do 20 ceremonies before they feel better. But I find most people need to do like one or two and then process that information. And I think where some of these, you hear stories of people freaking out and stuff like that. They're pushing themselves too hard. They've already paid $5,000 for this package and they really don't feel they need to do five ceremonies, but they go ahead and go through with it because they pay for it and they want their money's worth, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually recommend doing ceremonies one by one. Um, I think that's the safest and most effective way to do it. Interesting. Now, now, is there a way for someone traveling through Peru to just purchase ayahuasca and then do it on their own in their hotel or something like that? Absolutely. You can just go to the market um, in Cusco, the San Pedro market. You just go to the market and buy a bottle of it. They usually put it in Coke bottles. And is it? It's usually <laughs> fairly safe. Like you're not gonna. It's not gonna be tainted. They're not. How do you know there's not any of those additional drugs that you mentioned that could really you screw don't screw with you? You don't. So I. Unless you somehow know the person that is selling it to you or the person that made it, I would not recommend doing that. Um, personally, I know a lady in the San Pedro market that has good, clean ayahuasca that many of my friends have used and whatnot. And I've, I've known her probably for eight, eight years or so now. Um, and I would buy it from her and I think it's perfectly safe. But if you just go to any random person, I would say, no, don't, don't do that. Because once it's in the liquid, I mean, you can't tell what's in it. Right. Yeah, that is that is very good information. Yeah, <laughs> that is really great to know. So yeah, if you're listening and you're planning on doing ayahuasca in Peru, if you go, don't just yeah. buy any bottle. Right. Yeah, I think you could just do that across the board. Any drugs, just <laughs> yeah. Where, you never know. Yeah, exactly. You're in a you're in a brand new country where you're not familiar with. Yeah. yeah. Best thing to do is find a uh, a shaman or practitioner that you've had friends or someone recommend to you that's really the the best way to do it okay right yeah all right well i'm i'm curious now i think this is a good transition point to talk about south american culture and some of the ways that and south american ethnobotany and how culinary aspects of peru in the andes and the medicinal herbs that they've developed over time how that's all come to light well, um, Peru is certainly a hotspot of biodiversity and of, of ethnobotany. Um, you have over 42 languages uh, spoken in Peru, most of those in the jungle. Quechua, Machinga, Shipibo, Yine, I mean, the list goes on and on. And each culture has sort of its own take on, on different plants. Each, each culture has its own ethnobotany. For example, as well, uh, Pineapple is from the Amazon. Uh, strawberries are from the Andes. Tomato and hot peppers are also from that region. There's so many plants that come out of the Amazon that many people would recognize in, uh, in their everyday lives. Um, but there's also tons that people would not recognize, like uh, a guaje or uh, pacay. Pacay is known as the, uh, the ice cream bean, and uh, it's a really tasty fruit. But I, I don't, not sure you can get it outside of South America. It's this big green, uh, green bean looking pod and you rip it open and it has like, they should have called it the cotton candy bean, but it has this like styrofoam stuff in it around the seeds that tastes just like vanilla. Um, so there's just a, a ton of, of different things in Peru and South America to explore. And that's why I enjoy traveling there so much, even after having lived there for almost 10 years. All the time, I find out about something something new. That sounds delicious. I think we're going to have to get that, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, so with the one of the things that we did want to look at and talk to you about is the coca leaf, mm-hmm. because that is also one of the popular, well, I guess more colloquially, like cocaine is extracted from it. And Correct. in the US, you cannot have anything related to coca is considered illegal. Uh, yeah, and- so my... 
So my friend went to Peru. He went through the Amazon and came back one day and I met him in Colorado to go hiking. And Mm -hmm. he had this baggie of what he called cocoa leaves. Yeah. And I was like, well, I wasn't sure what it was. And he said it was basically the, the cocaine plant in leaf form, which he then, I guess, brought home with him on a plane from Peru <laughs> to the United States, right. which was illegal. So that is the case. It is common, correct? And from what I've heard, you can buy baggies of it very easily, and it helps with altitude sickness? Exactly. Yeah, the, the coca leaf is one of the uh, seven illegal plants, uh, seven illegal botanicals actually listed in law in the United States and, and many other countries around the world. So it is illegal to possess the the coca leaf or seeds or any part of the plant. And it's what cocaine is extracted from. However, the leaf itself is a pretty benign, uh, mild stimulant. It also contains a lot of other vitamins and minerals. Um, it has the highest calcium content of any edible plant. And that was something really lacking in the Peruvian diet before the Spanish introduced cows and and milk. And the Andean women uh, don't have any problems with osteoporosis because they chew coca leaf so much. Whereas some of the more modern uh, Peruvian women are starting to get issues with that because they've stopped chewing coca. But yeah, the the coca leaf is is illegal in the United States. Um, Sorry, you had another question, but I I lost it in mind. Altitude sickness. Ah, yes. Yes, it is. It is a great treatment for altitude sickness sort of takes away the the headache that you have from like low oxygen and kind of gets you going. I definitely think the best way to treat altitude sickness is to chew a bunch of coca. Huh. That's interesting. Do you, do you remember the movie uh uh Captain Phillips? That was the it was the I, re That was with Tom Hanks. That was a, that's yeah, the one yeah. where he was the Somali well he was the boat captain and the Somali pirates hijacked his boat. Yeah, so that was a a take on and a recounting of that uh event but right. throughout the film uh they the somali pirates kept on chewing cot yes exactly which i've uh, understand to be very similar to the coca leaf even though they're on two completely different continents well oh, wait go ahead go okay ahead, it's it's uh it's similar in its effect um cot is a uh, catha edulis and it grows in africa and the middle east and it contains amphetamine or ephedrine-like compounds. The coca leaf from South America contains cocaine and related compounds. So they're not botanically or chemically related, really. They're related in their effects. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in the sense that they're both stimulants. Exactly. They're both stimulant leaves that you chew. Yeah. Okay. Is that the bean? There's another, I don't know if it's the same one, but there's an epidemic going through Asia. Countries, I think like the Philippines, There's is that is that the same one? Beetle nut. That's it. Beetle nut. That's the yeah. nasty red one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That that is gross, and that's destroying um, their teeth and give the skyrocketing mouth cancer. Yep. In that region. Yeah. Yes. So with beetle nut, there is definite strong evidence that it causes mouth cancer with or without tobacco, because sometimes they add tobacco to it. But the beetle nut itself causes uh, mouth cancer. Or oral cancer. Um, the coca leaf, all the studies they have done show that it's good for your teeth and uh, doesn't give you any sort of cancer. And, and, and why one plant would and another does not, I have, I have no idea. But uh, they did some studies. They're basically trying to prove that like the coca leaf was the reason. Like there's a lot of racism in Peru. I don't believe this. This is what the, the people who made this study were, where they were coming from. They basically believe that like the Andean people are peasants and they're stupid. And this study was trying to prove that it was like the coca leaf, you know, um, degrading their minds and teeth and whatnot. And they actually ended up finding the exact opposite. Yeah, I'm, wow. waiting, I'm waiting for like this, one of these like fishing or just like clickbait ads, like the miracle plant that has nothing wrong that'll make you <laughs> run faster and do all this extra stuff. And it's right. perfect and has no issues. If it's out there, it's probably in the Amazon. Yeah. And, and and that's probably not true either. I'm sure that there are there could be some negative health effects from coca. But uh, when I when I'm in Peru, I chew it like two or three times a day, and I haven't had any issues so far. So uh, we'll we'll see. And so it's a similar stimulant. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking like coffee, just a very mild. Yeah, I mean caffeine, um, just a very mild stimulant. So when I chew it, it looks like I have like a golf ball in my mouth. Like that's how much I chew. And if you chew it like that with this, there's this uh, substance called yipta. It's basically burnt plant ashes. 
and Yipta changes the pH so that it extracts the cocaine and related alkaloids more easily into your mouth. And if you chew it, if you sit down and chew it like that with the Yipta, you'll get pretty, pretty stimulated. <laughs> All right, maybe we shouldn't do that. Hike <laughs> Machu Picchu in record timing. There you go. <laughs> Very interesting. And so do you mind getting into the actual people? And I don't want to chop chop this name up, but it's the Machenga? Machenga. Yep, Machenga. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a cheese. <laughs> So there's two groups that I work with in Peru. You have the uh, the Machinga people who live in the Amazon, basically in southern Peru. Um, and then you have the Quechua people who are throughout the Andes all the way up into to Ecuador as well. Um, the Quechua people are basically the descendants of the Inca and they are Andean people. They farm potatoes. They uh, herd uh, llama and alpaca and they live generally over... 2,500 meters. They, they live high up in the mountains. Um, the Machinga people are native, you could almost say tribal people that live in small hamlet type communities scattered throughout the Amazon, the southern Peruvian Amazon. They hunt and fish and also do uh, Swidden agriculture. They plant uh, yucca, also known as manioc, and they hunt monkeys and tapir and, and various animals from the jungle for meat. They also farm things like corn and papaya. So you have two pretty different, pretty distinct cultures. Just just in the area where I work, the Quechua is up in the Andes and the Machinga down in the Amazon basin. Hmm. So I'm going to sidetrack us for a quick second. And I'm sure I could Google this, but since I'm talking to you, what is the difference between a llama and an alpaca? <laughs> they're two slightly different. They're, they're both... They're both selectively bred from the Wanako, I think is how you say it. The Wanako is sort of this wild llama thing. The llamas are bigger, have coarser fur, and the alpacas are smaller and have finer fur. And I can't remember which is which, and this might not even be true. But they say that one has its ears up and one has its ears down. But I don't know if that's true, so don't, you know. Which which animal is that Machu Picchu that you see all over the place? It would probably be alpacas because yeah. they're more... Um, more prestigious because their their fur their um, wool is finer and they're sort of the iconic animal of Peru so they're probably alpacas at, at Machu Picchu okay. interesting okay all right do you want to get back into psychoactive plants sure. because Let's I have it. other questions okay so please. are you are you <laughs> are you familiar with the San Pedro Absolutely. cactus yes um, that actually is probably my favorite plant like hands down. Um, I started working with San Pedro when I was about 15. I took a little trip to South America when I was when I was young with, with the family. And uh, I had my first San Pedro experience when I was 15 years old. And uh, it was one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me. I will personally cook San Pedro and give it to people. But I will not do that with ayahuasca. Because San Pedro is much more forgiving. Um, someone could have been out drinking and, and doing drugs the night before. And you can take San Pedro and you'll be totally fine. If you take ayahuasca after a big night of drinking and doing drugs, you could maybe have some problems. So San Pedro is a, it's cactus. Let me go back to the basics. It's a cactus. I, know, I, was, I was about to ask all that because I was like, hold on, what the hell is San Pedro? <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a cactus that contains mescaline. Mescaline is the same active ingredient as is in uh, Lophophora, peyote. San Pedro is in the Trichocerius genus and it's a large columnar cactus. It's uh, like, a, like a pole sticking out of the ground. One really interesting thing about the San Pedro cactus is they've actually found evidence of ceremonial usage in one of the oldest archaeological sites in South America. It's like 10 or 11,000 years old. And they found dried San Pedro associated with ritualistic items like rattles and flutes and things like that. So that probably gives us the strongest direct evidence of psychoactive plant usage that is that old. Um, it's called the Cave of the Guitarero, the Cave of the gu- Guitar Player. And where is this? Where was this? This is, if you stuck your finger right in the center of Peru, and then you went over just a little to the left. It's on the western slopes of the Andes, I think northwest of Huaraz. Okay. Now, in Huaraz, while I'm thinking about this before I forget, in Huaraz there is what the Temple of Doom in Indiana Jones was based off of. It's called Chavin de Wantar. It's, it's the real Temple of Doom. 
And this is a place that for hundreds of years, it was the spiritual center of maybe all of South America, but definitely what is now modern day Peru. And it was controlled by these uh, jaguar priests. It's these priests that would dress up like jaguars. They had this like mouth guard thing that they would stick in their mouth that made them look like they had fangs. And they would basically send initiates through this temple in these labyrinths. They would give them a bunch of drugs, uh, San Pedro, Yopo, uh, Brugmansia, the, the dangerous flower I was talking about. Then they would send them through these tunnels. And the priest had different holes and cubbies and stuff where they would whisper like incantations and stuff. But the, the initiate didn't know where they were coming from. There was also a tunnel that fed water through it. So it made this rushing sound. And eventually in the middle of this labyrinth, there's a hole and there's a carving of the god. It's this really intricate uh, anthropomorphic carving of a mixture of a man, a jaguar and a caiman, a crocodile. So they're going through the pitch black darkness and then they turn the corner and there would be this, this statue bathed in light while they're in the middle of their drug trip, basically. <laughs> Sounds like terrible hazing. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But after you did this initiation, you would then be part of the, uh, you know, of the initiated. Huh, all right. One last thing. I, I, I'm saying drug and people in South America really don't like that term because it's associated with cocaine. I'm using it in a scientific way just to mean anything that alters your mind. So if I'm offending any, any listeners, probably not many South American listeners, but I mean it in the strictest scientific way, not that these are negative drugs. Right, right. Dude, so you just piqued my interest with that story. Mm -hmm. It just it reminds me of Indiana Jones. Yeah. And is this something, an archaeological site that people can tour? Yes, today? absolutely. It's uh, it's not even a fraction as popular as Machu Picchu, but yeah, you can go to the center of Peru, uh, Chivende Huantar. It's about eight hours in bus uh, from Lima, and it's cheap. It's not very touristy, and it's really, really amazing. That's awesome. And have you? Are there? A, well, I guess it's a two-part question. Are there a lot of other similar archaeological sites in Peru, South America, and have you made a point to go see them? I have seen everything from about. I've seen almost everything in Peru except for the north. I mean, almost everything, meaning the large archaeological sites. There are various ruins from different time periods scattered all throughout the out Peru. There's three main regions of Peru. You have the coast, the mountains, and then the jungle. And a lot of these are on the on the coast. Uh, cultures like the Chimu, which built these sort of um, adobe pyramids. But yeah, there's there's ruins all over Peru, but none of them have the association with uh, psychoactive uh, drug use like Chivende Huantar does. All right. So the San Pedro, you said you took that when you were in South America, when you were 15. And what was that experience like? I mean, that, I don't know I, what, your, what your upbringing was like. I don't know. That may, maybe have been your first drug. I was raised by a very um, uh, fairly conservative family. Um, like they're not Trump supporters or anything, but, but conservatives, <laughs> um, um, and fairly Christian as well. So that was definitely something really foreign for me. Uh, when I was, yeah. So I went down sort of for a summer on sort of a, a family trip and I had smoked weed when I was 14 and then I Googled, uh, psychoactive plants and that was it. That opened the whole <laughs> the, the the whole Pandora's box right there. Yeah, that it seems like it set up you know the rest of your life in a way. Definitely, it was it was yeah. Most people take drugs and have really terrible experiences, you know. <laughs> but no, mine's been pretty positive. Um, so yeah, I googled psychoactive plants. I knew that San Pedro would be obtainable in South America, and so basically, I, I found it in the market. I bought a ton of it, and I went home and, and started trying to cook it. And the first couple times I cooked it, it, it really did not work that well. Um, I just felt nauseous, like not much happened. But probably about the third or fourth time, I really, I really got it right. And it was sort of a warm day. I walked out um, into the backyard where we were staying, and I looked up in the trees, and there was, you know, light coming down through the leaves in the trees. And it sort of started twisting like a kaleidoscope and turned into like a chandelier of, of light. So that was my first real experience. And I was like, wow, this stuff is, is amazing. 
but it's not just about the visions you see. That is one sort of cool part of it. But it made me, all the messages it sent me were like really positive to be a better person. You know, like love your family, you know, be patient with your girlfriend. And the, the strongest message I get is protect the earth, protect mother nature. So that really piqued my interest when I, when I felt those, like it was really strange to me, you know, like someone asked you, what does cocaine do? Oh, it makes you stimulated. Uh, what does heroin do? Uh, it kills pain. It makes you sleepy. Well, what does San Pedro do? And it's like, well, like sit down, you know, how long do you have? Because this is going to take a minute. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was uh, my first experience basically. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. That's an interesting, I mean, as a 15 year old, I don't know how many people have that kind of experience and to say that that has kind of shaped your career and what you've been doing for the last 15 years but I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about how you came to be in Peru what brought you there and why you stayed so besides the uh the little family trip when I was 15 which the only person really into uh I mean, my dad's a forestry major, but he's not into the psychoactive plants and stuff like I am. The first big trip to Peru was uh, in 2010 with a company called the Botanical Preservation Corps. And they are defunct. They're closed now. But they used to go around the world collecting plants and seeds and cultural knowledge about anything from edible to medicinal to psychoactive plants. So I went on an expedition with them for about two or three weeks and I was the only amateur. Everyone else was like PhD, botanist, biologist, et cetera, et cetera. And going with them, I mean, you know, we'd like, we'd walk through a valley and the botanist would tell us about all the plants. The uh, anthropologist would tell us about the mythology of the place. The geologist would tell us about the rocks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just uh, opened up, uh, you know, my mind to how amazing Peru is. And that's, uh, yeah, that was my first trip in 2010 that was like really geared towards plants. Nice. And so now, can you tell us, you work for who? The Ethno Yeah, Co? Eth- Ethno Co, or that's uh, the, the abbreviated version. It's the uh, Ethnobotanical Conservation Organization. And yeah, that's, I, I, me and my wife are the owner and the founders. And we focus on basically connecting cultures. Uh, we want... People from outside America, Europe, whatever it may be, to come to Peru and have a deeper experience than just seeing Machu Picchu and taking a picture of a llama, which is cool, but there's so much more. So we try to connect connect cultures. Um, we try to connect the Quechuas with gringos and Machinga with gringos by setting up homestays and tours in their villages and in the area around their villages. And we also bring back cultural goods like textiles or uh, necklaces made of seeds or different things like that to sell here in the United States as well. That's nice. awesome. And is this something that you do you introduce ayahuasca as part of your, your tour? Absolutely. If people are, if that's something that they want to do, I definitely can set that up. However, we are not a strictly ayahuasca or psychoactive plant focused uh, company like many of the companies, uh, Gringo ran retreat centers in Iquitos and whatnot. Um, We focus on basically all aspects of, of Peruvian culture with a specific interest in plants. But yeah, I mean, I will take people to Chivende Wantar to do San Pedro if that's what they want to do. I'll take them to uh, Manu National Park and we can go into the Machinga village, meet the Machinga people like in their real place, not a retreat center, something set aside for tourists, but the, the real place and, and go take ayahuasca with them in one of their huts. So with the with the Quechua and the Machinga, do you yeah. speak both of those languages or have you learned portions of them? I know a little bit of Quechua and less Machinga, but we can always, almost always find someone that speaks Spanish and the native language. Okay. So, And are you fluent in Spanish then? I'm like 80% fluent. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, and my wife is Peruvian, so she's she's fluent in Spanish. But I speak more Quechua than she does because she's from the coast and they don't speak Quechua there. Ah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so would... Part of the experience with with Ethnoco be introducing um, gringos <laughs> to the Amazon, absolutely, and getting them yeah. into the jungle. Uh, I went on your website, pretty awesome website. There's a Thank you. picture. Uh, it looks like uh, just a bunch of logs. You created a raft going through the Amazon. So that's something that I find very interesting and something that I've always wanted to do. Unfortunately, we're not really going to have time to do that 
on our trip just because we're, we're limited and, you know, we're doing the, the gringo trail as it's called, you know, yeah. through the sacred Valley, you know, so a second trip would be needed to do something like this. What is that like for, you know, a Westerner to then go deep into the Amazon jungle? Uh, I, I've always just been infatuated with the wildlife. You would see the safety of it. Could you describe that? Yeah. So I recommend people do minimum of four days in the jungle. We leave out of Cusco about 5 a.m. And we're in the jungle by 2 to 4 p.m. It's about seven or eight hours on the road. So yeah, four days. We stay in lodges, so it's, it's quite comfortable. Um, the lodges have, you know, even they even have hot water in the showers, which is pretty, pretty luxurious for Peru. Except one night we stay in, in the hot springs at these base, very, very basic huts. Uh, our only lights are candles and things like that. But yeah, usually four days in the jungle visiting native communities, visiting this uh, site of petroglyphs, of, of rock carvings. We can take walks through the, through the jungle with the, the medicine man or the shaman who can show us different medicinal plants and things like that. And we also go look for animals. Um, there's a lagoon that you can sort of take this, this balsa raft across, like you were saying. And there's all sorts of birds and wildlife there. And then we do some walks through the jungle as well, looking for, uh, you know, tapir, jaguar, or whatever, whatever it may be, monkeys. Have you seen any jaguar? I have not. I have not no. seen a jaguar in all these years. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Right? Well, yeah. And I, I had one um, one friend who recently went, and he, he went for a four-day tour, and he saw a jaguar. And I've been going out there for, you know, almost 10 years, and I've never seen one, and I was so jealous. <laughs> but I did, <laughs> did see he... I did see an ocelot, which they say Ooh. which they say is more rare than the jaguar, so I feel a little uh I feel a bit better that I haven't seen a jaguar since I got to see an ocelot. Have you seen the article going around about the guy who was hiking in or trail running in Colorado and was attacked by a mountain lion and then ended up strangling it? I did I mean, see that. How insane is that? To that is- well, not only that, but then about a week later, there was a woman in Montana that was walking her dog. And she tried to break up a fight between her dog and another dog, grabbed mm-hmm. the other dog and threw it off and then realized when she grabbed it that it was a mountain lion and Whoa. she ended up killing it as well. Oh my gosh. But in both instances, they were juvenile cats. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think if in both instances, if there were full grown mountain lions, I do not think they would be telling. For the, guy in Col- <laughs> yeah. For the guy in Colorado, the cat they said was about 80 pounds, which... Okay. Still, an 80-pound cat with those claws and teeth, I mean, he's messed up. From what the last thing I read was that he's still in the hospital. So oh, it's okay. not like yeah. he got out without injury. Um, but wow, <laughs> what an incredible story. That's scary stuff. Um, and so keep keeping on with wildlife in the Amazon, mm-hmm. one of the things that – this is from, I guess, cartoons when I was little, but piranhas. There's a ton of them, right? And go ahead. Go ahead. So where we work in the upper, sort of the headwaters of the Amazon, there is not so many piranhas. There's not the red-bellied piranha. There is a another fish called paku, which it's sort of, it looks like a piranha, but it has human-looking teeth, and it eats, uh, it eats nuts and fruit and stuff out of the water. And there's a myth that it will uh, bite your nuts, but I don't think it will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, that was on... Uh, River monsters, yes, I think. Yeah, yeah it was on River yeah. monsters uh, where they, the guy was out there hunting for it and had that that same story. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how much of that show is scripted, but he'll go to like some village where they have issues with some fish, and he hears all the different stories, and then he goes out and he has to go look for this fish. But yeah, it was it, it's an interesting fish to see. And there's a similar story where yeah, it was biting guys in right in that area. Yeah. Yeah, and the Amazon Amazonian fish and the wildlife are just so interesting because they what's the uh, there are a few different names for it, but the massive scaly it's like the arapama. Oh, uh, I think you I think you might have said that right or been really close. Um, it basically looks like a head with a fin. It like doesn't yeah yeah it's massive. It looks mm-hmm. like a really big eel. Yes, and then there's another another really tiny fish related to the. Uh, the nuts that will actually swim up urethras and like lay eggs. Correct. Well, it's called the kenderu and it's a small parasitic, I think, catfish. And normally it swims into the uh, the gill openings of fish and sort of feeds on the blood vessels in there. And then it's able to leave. I Yeah, it will. 
sometimes swim up an orifice. It doesn't have to necessarily uh, be a, a, a man's, and nor does it have to be that part. It could be any orifice. So, so be careful. Um, but I recommend if you're in the Amazon, don't pee in the water. And women, if it's your time of the month, don't go in the water. Um, because it will look for things to swim up. And then it has these little spines that it pulls out. So oh. you can't you can't pull oh. it out. Oh Jeez. and it ah. it does that to the fish so that it can hang on and, and eat, you know, eat their blood vessels. But once it gets in you, uh yeah, you have to have surgery to get it out. But it's very, very, very rare. There's like three cases in recorded history, but it's not a myth. It it happens. Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah, <laughs> South America is very scary when it comes to wildlife. Have you seen, there's videos of people going there, traveling through the Amazon, then coming back and, you know, they're sleeping, they're in their bed and a few nights go by and they start to hear crunching in their ears and they don't know what it is. And this one woman in particular, after nights of sleeplessness and crunching, she realized that she had a bug, a, a bot fly laid eggs under her uh, scalp or in her scalp. Yeah. And the eggs had hatched and the larva was actually eating their oh, tissue. Yeah. Yeah. So what her husband did uh, was put Vaseline over it mm-hmm. and to suffocate the fly. And so eventually the fly came out for air and he was ready. And this is all on YouTube. I watched this video. It is, it is crazy. So he gets the tweezers and he grabs the fly as it comes out for air and starts to pull it out. And it's a hole, I mean, a little bigger than a, than a pinhead. Yeah. This thing, he squeezes it out and it's narrow, narrow. And then when it finally gets out, it just pops and it's this giant fat fly. It is so oh, gross. So we're, supposed is- to, we're supposed to be making people want to travel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Hey, well, this is, you know, we, we want them to be safe too. So just be I prepared. I don't think there's any way to combat that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The bot fly to me is not particularly worrisome um, just because it... It doesn't cause much problems other than being really, really gross and like eating a bit of your flesh. There's no malaria in the area of the jungle I work in either, but there is this thing called leishmaniasis and this little black fly bites you and it basically gives you this like flesh eating bacteria and it just eats holes in you if you don't get treatment. So that's the one to really look out for. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Um, Here, I have a question for you. Yellow fever. For... I know for Peru, it's recommended, um, but it seems like it's something that would only be an issue if you're traveling through the Amazon jungle, not necessarily along the coast or in the Andes. Is Correct. that something that people have to worry about? Is that that's right? That's right. Uh, you definitely, unless you were going to the jungle, you absolutely don't need yellow fever vaccine. Okay. And and that being said, there are no uh, there's in, in the area I work in specifically, there hasn't been any recorded cases of yellow fever for quite a long time. However, in northern Bolivia, there is sometimes. But yeah, it's really not necessarily necessary unless you're going specifically to the jungle. Very interesting. Good to know. I'm, I'm really looking forward to my trip. And as we mentioned, we were talking briefly before the show, you're going to be there in April? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we, okay. might, we might have to send you our itinerary and we'll figure out a good time <clears throat> to yeah, meet man. up. Like I said, we're going to be in the, uh, in the Cusco area. For, cool. That's, yeah. that's where I much. live. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, the yeah. more the more we talk about going to Peru, the more we talk about with people that are in Peru, Lima, Cusco. That's like I want to make this a month long trip now. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's the worst thing about this is that we just practically don't have the time to spend yeah. as much time as we want to, you know, because that Cusco, that Sacred Valley region is such a small area of Peru. Um you know, but if you're going there and you only have a week, it seems like the the spot to be to go to Peru and not see Machu Picchu. You know, that would be hard to do. But I think with this podcast, hopefully, I know Ellie and I have learned this, and I hope other people who are listening have learned this that there's so much to do. Peru is such a large country with all these different cultures, all these different geological zones, and and to really understand the country, you you should probably you know make time to get a little bit of each of them. It reminds me of, you know, traveling to the United States for someone to come to the United States and only visit New York City. Yes, you came to the United States, but you only saw New York City, which doesn't represent, you know, even a fraction of the United States. Well, I guess a fraction of the United States. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Very good point. There are, yeah, many different cultures and languages spoken, types of food. But the, the three big ones are the coast, the mountains the sierra the andes and the jungle 
And one reason why I recommend Manu to people, a lot of people, when they think Peruvian jungle, they think Iquitos, which you guys know I'm sort of biased against a little bit. It's a big jungle city. It's a bit dangerous. Um, it's actually the biggest city that you cannot reach by car. It's the biggest city you can only reach by plane or boat. But yeah, it's, it's a little dangerous, a little dodgy stuff going on. And I know people that will, one of the best jungles in the world, one of the most pristine, beautiful jungles in the world is Manu National Park, six to eight hours north of Cusco. People will literally, they'll be like, I'm going to the jungle. And I'm like, oh, cool. Where are you going? And they're like, oh, I'm taking a plane to Lima and then flying to Iquitos. And it's like, the best jungle is only six hours away. Why are you getting on a plane and flying to a, a lesser jungle? But a lot of people just don't know about it. So I would encourage anyone that's uh, interested in going to Peru to look up uh, Manu National Park. Awesome. Awesome, man. Hey, Scott. So we're going to wrap this up. You've been incredibly okay. informative. I This conversation was awesome. I learned in, I learned a ton in just this past hour, and I really appreciate your time on here. Yeah, it, man. Thank you so much. I thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And I, I love talking about this stuff. So yeah. Yeah, thanks. man. Anytime, before we go, um, send out, what's your website? Uh, my website is www.ethnoco.com. That's E-T-H-N-O-C-O.com. And what about social media sites? Uh, you could find us on Facebook at Ethnobotanical Conservation Organization, or you can just put in Ethnoco and it, it should come up on Facebook. We also have Etsy if you guys are looking for uh, textiles or unique cultural products. Awesome, man. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right, so that has to be one of the more informative podcasts we've had. And, you know, one of the coolest things about our trip to Peru has been the planning involved with it and the people we've met on our podcast as a result. So because of this opportunity to host this podcast, we have been able to sit down with some incredibly knowledgeable people and learn about the country in a way that we never would have experienced otherwise. Uh, you know, from the food scene in, in Lima to the hiking in the Sacred Valley to now hearing about the plant life and spiritual practices of these plants, uh, I feel pretty honored to have met these people and I can't wait to actually meet them in person when we go there. So I know that's going to be so awesome. I like, I re I'm really excited to meet Sam. I'm really excited to hopefully get a beer with Scott and Matt at the same time, ideally in Cusco. Yeah. And I don't, did we ever mention that, that they actually know each other and Matt was the one that hooked us up with Scott. I don't know if we said, Oh that. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's been really cool, and we're learning about this country. I mean, have you ever gone on a, a trip and learned about the country like this before? Oh, absolutely Prior? not. No, no. This is, yeah, and and so if you're listening to this and you're interested in hearing our other episodes with uh, Sam, who talked about the food scene in food food scene in Lima, and then Matt, who breaks down hiking through the Sacred Valley, you want to check those two out. It's episode number 22 and then 23. So uh, highly recommend them, especially if you're going to be going to Peru. Oh, and rate us on iTunes, please. Very much appreciated. Yeah, so that's, that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in next time. Yeah.